As Dan mentioned earlier, we are indeed in the Gospel of John. So if you forgot your Bible this morning and want to run over and grab one of the uh, FCA copies of the Gospel of John, now's the time to do so. Today we move into John chapter 6, and uh, in light of the extra things that we had going on this morning, uh, I had originally planned on going from verses 1 through 15 of chapter 6, but I'm actually going to stop at, uh, I believe, at verse 9 this morning, uh, perhaps, um, and then we'll pick up with this same account next week. Jesus feeds the 5,000, John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, I'm going to read all the way through verse 15 for the sake of context. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come to, and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let us pray. Father, I pray that your word would bring much encouragement to the faith of your people this day. Lord, we are tested in many ways. And I pray, Lord, that the testimony of each believer in this room would be that in those times we look to you. Whether it be the testing through the trials that we face in this life. Lord, many of us are well acquainted with the, the grief that can come from life in this fallen world or, or other types of tests that we may face. 
Lord, I pray that our ultimate aim would be to look to you, the one who has died to redeem us, and that we would trust you and respond in ways that reflect that faith to a lost and dying world. Help me, Lord, to preach your word well. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, before I get started, just a, a word to those who may, may be watching the live stream uh, this morning. I want to apologize. We are having a little bit of a technical difficulty where things that are projected on the screen are not showing up on uh, the live stream or the video recording. And so what um, you'll just see my lovely face unless I see Mike running up to fix it now. Um, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, everything works out. But either way... Uh, You'll be able to hear everything that's said and even seen. We're going to do something a little bit differently here in a few moments with the uh, introduction today that I hope will encourage you as well. But last week, as we were finishing um, uh, up John chapter 5, I, I confessed to you my love for church history, a, a fact which surprised absolutely none of you. So today it's only fitting that, that I point out what a special day this is in the history of the church. Today is the 500th anniversary of one of the most significant events leading up to the Protestant Reformation of the church. Did you know that? Anybody know what happened today, 500 years ago? A couple of hands go up. All right, bonus points for you. On April 18, 1521, almost three and a half years after nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, Martin Luther made his famous Here I Stand speech at the Diet of Worms. Now, Diet of Worms does not describe what he had to eat while he was there. A diet back in those days was a congress or, or something similar to a trial at which they expected, they being the Catholic Church, Luther to recant of or, or to reject everything that he had written up to that point, including the 95 Theses. And, and at, by this point, he had written a lot. He had written pamphlets uh, against the papal rule of the church and the, and the abuses of power that he saw. He had written many uh, uh, booklets on theology, things that were uh, designed to strengthen and build the church. And as Luther arrived at the town of Worms, he arrived to a hero's welcome. The crowds were going wild. The common people loved him, and they cheered his entry into town days before he made this speech. Now, on the first day of his trial, Luther was blindsided. He came to, to Worms uh, thinking, expecting a debate with the Catholic Church about the things that he had written. He was looking at this as an opportunity to potentially reform the church. This was a, a big deal, and he was excited. But on day one, he was confronted with two questions as he walked into the room, 
There set before him on a table was everything that he had written up to that point. And the first question was, Luther, did you write these things? And the second question, do you recant of everything that's found within them? Now, this was not what he expected at all, and, and so to buy himself a little bit of time, he, he asked for a day to think about these two questions before giving his answer. And on the next day, April 18th, he gave that answer. And lucky for us, cameras were on the scene. And so we're going to see what happened that day, but before we roll the tape, I want to, 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 to identify some of the players you're going to see on the screen. You're going to see a guy wearing some really slick, tight pants with a bad haircut, sitting on a throne. That is Charles V. He was the, the German emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. You're going to see another elderly gentleman with a funny hat. His name was Frederick the Wise. He was known as the Elector of Saxony. He was the noble who ruled or reigned in the area where Wittenberg was, where Luther served and taught in the seminary. He's often referred to as Luther's protector because he took a lot of heat for the things that Luther taught and did. You're going to see a guy wearing all red sitting closely to the right of Charles V. His name is Eliandar. He is the, the Pope's representative. And then you're going to see other guys wearing red. Those are other cardinals and, and, and representatives of the Catholic Church. You're going to see men in monk's garb. They're monks. And then you're going to see other guys wearing fancy clothing that look a lot like what you see Frederick wearing. And, and those are other nobles uh, of the German provinces. And later in the Reformation, they're going to play a key role. But this is Luther's response a day later to the two questions that he was asked. Did you write these things and do you recant of them? Gentlemen, roll the tape. Order in the hall. Order. Order. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First are those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truths. He is not here to make speeches, only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the popes, past and present. No! Through the laws of the pope and the doctrines of men, 
The consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess that I've written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. my favorites. With that statement, 
Luther's response to the test. He was branded a heretic, which meant it was possible for anyone to legally come and to take his life. And he lived under that condemnation for the rest of his life. We often look to the nailing of the, of the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg as the first steps of, of, of the Protestant Reformation, and, and indeed it was. But this moment was a moment of no turning back for Martin Luther. He could have recanted And lived in ease the rest of his life. When instead he ended up living a life, much of his life in exile. Dealing with physical ailments. Before ultimately emerging yet again publicly as one of the great reformers of the church. We all face tests brothers and sisters, maybe not as historically consequential as Luther's at the Diet of Worms, but we must, like Luther, be grounded in Scripture in order to face these tests faithfully, to pass the test. And in our passage this morning, we find a test. Jesus is testing Philip. And from this test, I believe we find a reminder of the importance of having a clear view of who Christ is and what he has said in his word. This miracle, this feeding of the 5,000 that we're going to be looking at the next couple of weeks is one of the most well-known miracles. It's actually the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. John tells us that, that it took place uh, on, on the northern portion of the Sea of Galilee. It would have been near Bethsaida. Verse 1, he tells us, which is the, the Sea of Tiberias. Now, it's important that we understand that when these events took place, that that's not what the sea was called. John is writing that for those who would be reading, the contemporaries who would be reading the gospel once he wrote it. Yeah, the Sea of Galilee was more commonly referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. And that was because it was... Uh, it, it, there was a city there called Tiberius that was named after the, the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar. So John is using the common name to, to, to help his readers understand where this all took place. And next week we're going to focus more specifically on the miracle itself, but today we want to look at the testing of Philip, testing that, that takes place in verses 5 through 8. 
John 6, verse 5. It says, lifting up his eyes then, Jesus lifting up his eyes, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? We see from the Gospel of Mark that, that, that in sitting the disciples down, Jesus' initial, at least, intent was to, 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 to meet with them and to talk with them. They had been wearied from the ministry, it tells us in Mark chapter 6. And so they're sitting to, to take a break, and the crowds keep on coming. A large crowd, a, a great crowd crowd. John tells us there were 5,000 men. That's a lot. But we also need to remember that there were also women and children present. Some scholars estimate that the number of people present could have been up to 20,000 or more. So they sit down in a high place, probably the area that is modern day known as the Golan Heights in Israel. They sit down and behold, here come the masses. And Jesus turns to Philip in particular. Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Have you ever wondered why it was Philip? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> if we go back and we look at the Calling of Philip as a disciple, we learn that Philip was a local from Bethsaida. Right by where all this is happening. So who are you going to ask where the local Weiss market is other than the guy who is from the area, right? Hey, Phil, where are we going to buy enough food for these people? And his answer from a human perspective, Philip's answer is reasonable. Verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, the ESV does not do a little justice. Right. Literally, what Philip is saying here is 200 denarii wouldn't be enough for each person to have a bite. Lord, we don't have enough money to buy the food to feed all these people. One denarius what was the equivalent of a day's pay. So 200 equaled about eight months' worth of wages. That's a lot of money. Lord, we don't have enough to buy enough food for these people. Now we need to keep in mind... That up to this point, as in our study of the Gospel of John, the disciples have been present for almost everything that Jesus has done with the exception of his meeting with Nicodemus and his meeting with the Samaritan woman. But they knew about him turning water into wine. 
They knew about him healing the uh, official's son. They, they witnessed all the miracles. They, they saw the conversion of the Samaritan village. They witnessed the healing of the invalid in chapter 5. They saw the signs that he performed at the first Passover at the beginning of his public ministry. And they were present with him in miracles that, that John doesn't record either. And if we were to look at the other Gospels, we would see that there were many, many more miracles that Jesus had performed. And Philip had seen it all. And Jesus is testing him to see where his faith was after witnessing all these things. Is his faith strengthened or not? But unfortunately, old Phil, like many of us, could only see the problem that was right in front of his eyes. And that, brothers and sisters, is the problem. Philip was still viewing the world through a natural lens. A worldly problem in his mind needs a worldly solution. You have 20,000 people that need food, then we need to buy food. And they simply did not have enough money to do so. Now, let's be honest, most of us would have responded in a similar way. And while money is often a useful tool in, in getting things done, it is rarely truly the solution to our problems. Jesus is asking a question that he is ultimately the answer to. Philip, where are we going to get enough money to, or where, where are we going to buy food for all these people? Philip's answer should not be, we don't have enough money. But you're the Lord. <laughs> Can't you do something? We would do well to remember that money is only a tool as it relates to our efforts at ministry within the church. Our first question when we are presented with an opportunity, whether it be a ministry that we support or, or, or a new endeavor that we're going to undertake as a church ourselves to, to, to seek to, to uh, in our spreading of the gospel and making disciples as our calling of the church, should not be how much will it cost but is this something that honors the Lord and His purposes? And I have to confess, that's typically not my first thought. Now, a discussion on money, money is often necessary. We, we want to manage the resources that God has given us wisely. But money should never steer the ship. This is true corporately as a body. But brothers and sisters, it's also true as we consider our personal walks before the Lord as well. Now, in testing Philip, Jesus is not being unkind. In fact, he's being very loving. And I imagine once the miracle is actually performed and the multitudes are fed and the disciples are gathering up 12 baskets full of leftovers, Philip may have been impacted even more than the other disciples. 
surely his faith was strengthened. After all, that's the purpose of trials and testing in the lives of believers, is it not? Sure it is. James chapter 1, and I'm about to go through a, a litany of passages, and so maybe you should write these references down to go back to when you are tested and tried. James 1, verses 2 through 4. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that word perfect is best understood as mature in this instance. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It would be a good one to memorize because we are often tested and tried. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It goes on in verse 13, but say, but rejoice when this happens. So should trials, should testing surprise us? No. We should expect it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes, in this, and he's talking, this is their salvation in Christ. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So three great passages which speak to us about the purpose of testing and trials in our lives what they reveal about our lives, and even the goal of them. We should never be surprised when we encounter difficulties in this life. And I've only scratched the surface. There are a number of other passages which remind us of, of God's sovereign control over our trials and, and His work in growing and protecting us in our trials. And if you're going through a rough time, and many of us are, or maybe, if it's a, maybe it's an uncertain time. Maybe like Philip, you are confronted with, with a situation that you don't have a good answer for. Understand that God is fully aware and is allowing it to happen. 
And he will redeem it for our good and for his eternal glory. And, probably most important, we're, we're in the middle of it, he promises to help. Another reference to write down. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence... With confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. What a great promise. Write that down in your Bible, that reference, so you can find it. When your foundation feels like it's being shaken by the trials of this life. Our prayer list today alone is enough to want us, cause us to want to ask God the question, why? Why did this person die outside the faith? Why is this person suffering the way that they are? Why does evil seem to flourish when those who are seeking to be faithful seem to struggle? Why are there movements within Christianity which clearly undermine the trustworthiness and authority of Scripture? Lord, oh, why are these things happening? And we may not get the answer in this life. But we are given the resources to be faithful in the midst. Looking to Jesus, our great high priest who, who lived the perfect life that we could not live, who, who gave his life as a sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, that we could be reconciled to God forever. This promise, this one who gave his life to redeem us, the one who was tempted in every way without sin, calls us to look to him and to trust him and to live for his glory. Testing and trials take a variety of form in this, forms in this life. But God uses each and every one to grow us. To grow us by causing us to, to depend more fully on Him. That's why we have promises like Hebrews chapter 4. We can go to Him in faith and receive mercy and grace to help in times of need. Brothers and sisters, wise parents don't always rescue their children right away when they face problems. Oftentimes they allow them to struggle because struggle, when it is guided, leads to growth. God is no different except that He does it perfectly and that He's in control and He even ordains those tests 
for us in our lives. So why are we surprised when these trials come upon us? Well, I'll give you three reasons. And the response to each one is the same. Hebrews 4. The first one, the first reason that many Christians are, are surprised by the fiery trials that come upon us is because we have an unbiblical worldview. We don't have a category in which to put the bad things that happen because we have believed the lie that when we turn to Christ in faith that automatically everything's going to get so much easier in our lives. And an honest reading of, of the book of Acts alone should tell us that that is not reality for those who follow Christ. We will have trials in this world. But God is faithful. So we're often surprised because we don't have a biblical category in which to place these trials. Now, Philip's test wasn't one of, 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 of bad things happening to him. But he had to give an answer that reflect what he believed about who Jesus is. And he didn't even focus on Jesus at all, did he? He looked at the temporal. He did not yet have a category in which to put this need that was presented before him. Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? That would have been a better answer. We have to have that category, brothers and sisters, that, that recognizes that, that, that there is someone who is in control that is much greater to, than us. We have to have a category, brothers and sisters, that says that this God is not only worthy of our trust, but He demands our allegiance as well. And so as these trials creep into our lives, we come to realize, you know what? Even if my circumstances don't necessarily change right away, there is great joy and comfort to be found in trusting the one who gave his life to redeem me. There, there's a promise of help and grace and mercy in my time of need in him. So brothers and sisters, let us all strive as we read God's word and we come across the, the, even the passages that I shared with you today, read them in their context and, and be in awe of, of the God who's got this. He's got it covered, even our trials. But you must have a biblical theology of suffering and trials in this life. We must. If we don't, we will be washed to and fro by every wave of false doctrine that, that comes upon the shore of Christianity from now until the day we take our last breath. But when our faith is grounded in the truth, we are able to stand, even when we don't think we can. Sometimes it's not until we look back from the other side of the trial that we recognize that, you know what? Even when all seemed lost, 
I can look back and see how God was at work. I can see how Jesus sustained me in my time of need. So we must have a biblical worldview, brothers and sisters. Secondly, we're often surprised, and this is related to the first, when trials come upon us because we worship at the altar of comfort. We want it to be easy. Do we not? I do. I, I, to quote Hannibal from the A-Team, I love it when a plan comes together. But let's be honest, that's not usually the case. So we must repent of our idolatry of comfort and strive to follow him faithfully wherever he may lead. But the third reason I think that we are surprised by the trials that come upon us are that we're just like Philip. We're weak. We need his care. We lack understanding. We need the gentle Savior to lead us. Sometimes we're surprised because we're weak. And the beauty of Christ is that any amount of faith placed in Him is genuine faith. He does not wait till we have our THM from seminary to accept us, to love us, to shepherd us, to lead us. No doctorate required. He takes those who come to him by faith and he will not turn them away. So perhaps you're surprised by the trials in your life. Because you're beat down by life in this world. Just as Jesus is not condemning or rejecting Philip in testing his faith, recognize that the testing of your faith is to direct you to Jesus. Plain and simple. calling people unto himself. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the Jesus that calls to us. Struggling Christians, will we turn to him in faith? Let us pray. Lord, where will we go or where can we go when the next trial is upon us? When we are tested by things we do not understand, where will we go? Lord, if we are wise and thinking clearly, 
it will be to you, the one who will not reject us. So help us, O Lord, to learn what it means to rest in you, to trust in you, to cling to you, and to follow you in every circumstance of life. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who, like me, this morning are weak in faith. Help us to run boldly to you, our rock and our redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, glory be to Christ.
sing all glory be to Christ all glory be to Christ our King all glory be to Christ His ruling reign will ever sing all glory be to Christ Ephesians chapter 6 beginning at verse 10 Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Amen. We are dismissed.